Uh, I remember the sensation of dread. Uh, a guy had driven his van to the mosque. This is like, as it was kind of, it had just happened. It was ongoing. People still didn't really know the extent of the, the massacre. And he rocked up and uh, shouted out the side of his car that he was just there to celebrate and then drove off. There were bodies on the ground, people who had just been killed. And your instinct is, I'm going to go there and just cheer. From Schwartz Media, I'm Osman Faruqi. This is 7am. A year on from the Christchurch terrorist attack, Muslims in Australia are still wrestling with a new level of fear. Some have been drawn back to faith. Others are questioning the way media and politics has stoked division. In part three of this series, I talked to poet Omar Saka about life as a brown Muslim man living in Sydney a year on after the attack. This is episode three, The Itch at Your Back. I'll never forget that. that that was a thing that somebody felt was okay to do and to publicly declare to the authorities there, right? There must have been a sense that this is an allowable sentiment. I can express this here. It is safe for me to do that. And that contrast is just, it's beyond sickening. I wasn't surprised by it. I did feel a sense of maybe maybe another layer of hurt that I think any Muslim in Australia who particularly who is in the in the media who has a public profile or a semi-public profile or speaks and writes and 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 so on like I do and and you do um I think we've been very vocal about what is happening in this country. I think we've been very vocal about this very dangerous demonization, um, which has just rolled on unchecked. I was never really religious when I was young. My parents were Muslim and they encouraged me to read the Quran. My dad would take me to mosque on Eid. But I always felt that was more out of a sense of cultural obligation than a really strong sense of religious devotion. By the time I hit my teens, I was a confirmed atheist. Religion just wasn't a part of my life. Though when you're a brown guy with a beard and an Arabic name, everyone around you assumes you're Muslim anyway. My dad would still drag me to mosque then, but I kind of hated it and I was just going through the motions. After Christchurch, things changed. I'd never felt more isolated in the country I grew up in. I started to feel this compulsion to start going to mosque more regularly. I wanted to express solidarity with the Muslim community who were feeling so victimised about what had gone on. And it wasn't because I suddenly became religiously devout, but because I wanted a sense of community. I wanted to be around people who look like me and were going through the same thought processes after Christchurch that I was. So I started going to Friday prayers with some friends of mine. 
there were also second-generation Australian Muslims with a similarly complicated approach to religion. Hang on, sorry, one second. We're just picking up these guys. One of them was Omar Saka. He's a poet who writes for the Saturday paper. You know, my family, we didn't go to mosque uh, except on Eid. And I think partly that was just because there wasn't one close to us. But also, I just think, yeah, they, they didn't really go. My, my immediate family didn't really go. I've always considered myself Muslim. My family's Muslim on both sides, the Turkish and the Lebanese. And I think, yeah, I've had a fluctuating relationship to Islam um, and, and to God. But uh, over the past few years, you know, I've, I've had a similar urge to the one that you were just describing. You know, I've wanted to get back to prayer. Um, I've wanted to kind of get back to those roots because it, it was... It was and it is a grounding experience. I go to the mosque and it's simultaneously one of the safest and most loving environments. Uh, I feel such a sense of relief when I'm there. I can let go of my anxieties and just pray. But in the back of my mind, you know, initially I would have that thought process of what if some guy comes in here at the back like, you're so vulnerable when you're praying. You're, you're not meant to stop praying. Why, you know, once, it, once the prayer has begun, um, you kind of have to continue regardless of what's happening around you. And, so, and you, can't, you can't look back. It's a ritual, right? There's a process. There are movements involved. Um, so even if you're scared and that's in the back of your mind, you can't check on the itch at your back, so to speak. Uh, so yeah, there was, there's, there's absolutely some fear and I think it will never go away um, entirely. And when I look at the people who are being harmed, I see my sisters, I see my brothers, my uncles, I see their names. <laughs> of course, I have a very emotional reaction to hateful rhetoric, to the violence that we see um, routinely unleashed on our communities. We'll be back in a moment. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest, Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The thing about the Christchurch attack that has always stood out to me was that, if we're honest to ourselves, it didn't come out of nowhere. Because of how horrific the massacre was, there was this attempt to distance ourselves from it. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said that extremism like that had no nationality. The crime was perpetrated by an extremist terrorist 
and extremist terrorists have no nationality. They, they, their only nationality is hate and violence. And that's not our country. It's a tempting thought. The murder of 51 people is just so evil. How could it be grounded in the same culture that the rest of us belong to? But I'll tell you one thing, it all, all begins with extremism and extremism of all sorts of views um, from whatever perspective. And that's why it's important that uh, a tolerant um, society such as Australia yeah, gravitates towards the middle. Uh, that's, that's, the that's problem was Brenton Tarrant did have a nationality. He was an Australian. And while he spent the last couple of years before the attack overseas, he was inculcated in a country whose politics and media have been demonising Muslims and migrants for decades. When Blair Cottrell, then the leader of the far-right United Patriots Front, appeared on ABC TV to espouse his extremist beliefs, Tarrant posted on Facebook, Knocked it out of the park tonight, Blair. Your retorts had me smiling, nodding, cheering, and often laughing. Never believed we would have a true leader of the nationalist movement in Australia. No individual other than the shooter himself is responsible for what happened in Christchurch last year. But we need to acknowledge the role played by politicians and many in the media in demonising an entire community and normalising white supremacist ideology. There is a remarkable indifference to our suffering. News Corp published almost 3,000 articles in one year between 2017 and 2018 uh, that tied Islam to violence, that negatively portrayed Islam and Muslims. There are consequences to creating and profiting off that kind of demented hatred. Mm. I think that's really interesting because now it's like a constant like hum throughout yeah. the political ecosystem. And to me, that was a big tipping point as well, was not just that this massacre happened, which was already a moment that we were reeling from, grieving, mm. and the day after, not even like a week after or a month after, the day after and for days after that, politicians on the right just lined up to either take advantage of it or to blame us for what yeah. happened to it. I still can't get my head around that. No, right. So, like, even as, even as victims, we're still to blame. Countries that allow uh, large-scale Muslim immigration invariably have escalations in uh, crime, violence and terrorist attacks. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's just a, a statement of fact. Killing brown people, killing Muslims, is part of what this country and the West does and has been doing for many, many years. And so it doesn't make sense, really, that it would change markedly after this fact. In fact, you know, my friend um, Michael Mohammed Ahmed, uh, he called me the day of the massacre or was possibly the day after. And he was very upset and he was saying, I think, I think this is it. You know, I think this is the moment where they're going to realize that they being the white mainstream, they're going to realize that they've gone too far, that this has allowed such a horror to occur. And I said to him, Straight away, I said, it's not. 
it's really not going to change, man. If you pay attention to the massacres that they unleash in the Middle East, in you know the Arab and Muslim world, or the massacres they ignore, uh, you understand that our, our lives and our deaths do not matter to them at all. Omar's a poet, and as I started to put this episode together a few days after our conversation, I wanted to hear what he'd written about Christchurch. So I gave him a call. Talk to me for a second. I'm just trying to get the sound quality on your end, see what it's like. Yeah. Um, I wanted to hear how these experiences were shaping the art that he was making. I've written two poems. One is for Poem After Christchurch. It is an empty page, an absence. The second poem is called Postscript for Poem After Christchurch. What did you imagine? Write it down. I'm sick of speaking for monsters, nor will I inhabit the victim. Speak for yourselves, dear monsters. Tell us what you did. Wow. Can you... Tell me about those poems, Omar. As an Arab Muslim, I'm always expected to write about the violences and traumas inflicted on our bodies and our communities, and I've done that before, and I will do it again, because I think it's necessary. But it comes with a cost, and sometimes that cost can't be borne. Sometimes the imagination fails. Sometimes, you know, your, your heart fails, and he is certainly mine did. Omar, thank you. Uh, As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum wa salam, When Christchurch happened, I thought things would change. I thought it would be a wake-up call for those in power, politicians, the media, to change the way they would talk about Muslims, to acknowledge the threat posed by the far right. That hasn't happened. The far right is more emboldened than ever. And despite the risks we face... Politicians aren't taking the threat seriously enough. I wanted to tell this story because I wanted us to really acknowledge the horror of Christchurch and its legacy. The people who are currently controlling this conversation, they're the ones who don't want to have it. But we need to, or this will happen again. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news, the federal government has extended its coronavirus travel ban to include Italy. Foreign nationals who have been in Italy, mainland China, Iran and South Korea will not be allowed into Australia for 14 days after they leave those countries. And former Vice President Joe Biden has cemented his lead in the race to the Democratic presidential nomination. Biden won four of the six states that held primary votes last night, growing the gap between him and his competitor Bernie Sanders. This special investigative series on the aftermath of the Christchurch attacks would not have been possible without the hard work and support of the entire 7am team. 
7am is produced by Ruby Schwartz, Atticus Basto and Michelle Macklin. Elle Marsh, who reported part one from Christchurch, is our features and field producer, a position supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Brian Compo mixes the show. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Envelope Audio. New episodes of 7am are released every weekday morning. Make sure you don't miss out by subscribing on your favourite podcast app. I'm Osman Faruqi. This is 7am. Tomorrow, Ruby Jones will be returning to host the show with Paul Bongiorno. See you then.